The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. Hey, hey, welcome. Disability Law Show. Good to be back again for another week. Tamara Gopian is here. Thank God, because I couldn't do this without her. That is absolutely for sure. All your questions are the conduit right to Tamar and her team, not only during this hour of radio, but outside this, you can always get a hold of Tamar and her team. 1-855-821-5900, help at disabilityrights.ca. And for uh, another place to go, if you want to ask questions, you want to type them into your phone, your tablet, even your desktop, my disabilityquestions.com. We'll give you some more details on that in just a bit, and we'll probably pull some questions from that particular website as well. We're going to get to a ton of your emails and other questions on the show over the course of this hour, but tomorrow, as always, we start off with a a case of the day or a matter that you've been dealing with as of late. Uh, What do you got going on, pal? Well, I couldn't do this without you either, John, so thank you for that (laughs) opening, Salvo. Um, (laughs) So certainly much more interesting to talk into the ether or the radio uh, with you with me. So I appreciate that every week. So look, you know, I've been, of course, busy at work. Uh, This is a a really interesting time for disability litigation and litigation generally in the fall is typically a really good time to try and bring claims to a close. We find that most insurance adjusters and claims people want to bring, uh, you know, their file count down before the end of the calendar year. So this is a good time to get some deals done. So I've been, you know, I've got my hands in lots of different pots and I've been actually dealing with a couple of clients' files that are reminiscent of a theme. And so I thought I'd start off our show talking about this theme. And it's this idea that you can establish total disability on the basis of a variety of health issues. It doesn't have to fit neatly into one box. And in fact, courts have said that you don't really even need a diagnosis per se in order to qualify for disability benefits. Because let's remind our listeners, John, the test is, are you totally disabled from essentially working? And depending on when you're where you're at in the phase of your disability claim, it's either working at the job or occupation that you were doing before you stopped working as a result of your health, or alternatively, if you're beyond the two-year mark, the test is any occupation, anything for which you've got you know the educational background or work history that you could do that would either accommodate for your limitations or and or allow you to earn some measure of an income that lines up with the LTD benefit. But the reason why I wanted to start off the show about this topic is because I think there's a lot of myths or misunderstandings around what can establish a disability claim. And I don't know where those myths come from, John, maybe from the insurance companies. But I think that it's important to understand that if you've got, say, cognitive issues and physical issues, so my back is troublesome, I've got some swelling in certain parts of my body, I get a little bit of brain fog, I have lots of fatigue, Um, you know, my doctor's suggesting I might also be depressed. You can see that these are a number of different symptoms all together that can form the basis of someone saying, look, I'm just dealing with too many nonspecific things and I'm really not capable enough to to do my, you know, computer-based job or my warehouse position or whatever the case might be. And I think what ends up happening is that insurers actually resist these types of claims, John. They because it doesn't fit neatly into the box 
and that box says to the adjuster, this should be resolved in six to eight weeks, then it gets rejected right out of the gates a lot of the times. And so the two claims that I'm thinking of right now that I'm working on both deal with this what I call a constellation of health issues, which together the doctor or doctors have supported are sufficiently disabling to put someone off work and go down the path of making this disability claim. And the important feature here, John, I'm going to say this again, and I can't say it enough, is having that support from your medical team. It is the number one starting point of any disability claim is to have your doctor aware of all of the different health issues, endorsing these different health issues, trying to help you from a health perspective on all of these different health issues, and also to support the claim for disability. In other words, to provide the forms and paperwork and the documentation that the insurance company needs to go down the path of accessing disability benefits. And look, doctors, nurse practitioners, therapists, wonderful people, amazing profession, Certainly not anything I could do in my lifetime, but you know, I think that what is most difficult as a barrier for an individual who's got this constellation of health issues is where do I access the support? Because it's not necessarily going to come just from your family doctor. It's got to be you know, different referrals. Maybe you're being referred to counseling. Maybe you're doing group therapy. Maybe you're doing physiotherapy. Get all of that together. And it's absolutely fine to have the family doctor sort of make a list of things that are going on. Uh, but you want to make sure that if your treatment is multifactorial, in other words, there's lots of different things that are being addressed, that all of those things together are being presented to the disability insurer when they're considering your application for benefits. Because I can tell you the knee-jerk reaction from an adjuster is, ah, this is all, you know, subjective. There's nothing on a report or, you know, nothing in a in an x-ray report, for example. So we're just going to decline the claim and, you know, hope that this person just ends up going back to work or whatever, just kind of goes away, right? And doesn't pursue their rights that they're entitled to for benefits, even though they've got all of these health issues that are supporting a disability claim. Yeah. I mean, it's, you're not going to get far without that backing, comprehensive backing from your medical team. How, how deep into the, the weeds do you need to go with explanations? You, you mentioned filling out forms. I know doctors that their, their whole career is not about filling out paperwork. A lot of them hate doing it. A lot of them do it anyway, because they need to obviously, but I mean, how, how complex does this need to be? And I guess you can't really coach them as far as your medical staff. You just got to hope they do it correct or, or how does yeah. that work? Yeah, that's a good question, John. So look, I mean, we do have uh, really good resources. I think you may have mentioned, you know, our our website, ltdfaq.ca. And mm-hmm. on that website is a really helpful memo, not, not legal speak, just some basic four or five points on what should be included in a medical report from your doctor in support of your disability claim. And so what are the things that should be in there? Of course, you know, diagnosis, prognosis, you know, details around the restrictions and limitations and just some expectation around, look, this is what's going to happen from a treatment perspective. And this is when I'm going to continue to reassess my patient. And so I think that what's helpful with a resource like that is that, no, we're not coaching individuals. We're not coaching their medical teams, John. We're just trying to offer information because I think that you're right that a lot of doctors don't necessarily know how to navigate these disability insurers and what their adjusters are looking for. And I think that it's easy not to include everything. The details are incredibly important. And when a patient is 
providing a series of symptoms and those symptoms are inherently subjective, it is very easy for the doctor to say, hey, these are the subjective symptoms. Objectively, I think this person is fine when they're coming to your office with these symptoms being present, right? This is the kind of stuff that's not helpful in a medical support basis. I think what you know, the insurance adjuster is looking for is probably some consistency and some validation around what the claimant is reporting and what is being recorded in the medical information in support of the disability claim. So I would encourage people who are actually going down this path to have an open dialogue with their, first of all, their family doctor, and then anyone else who's part of their treatment plan or team to say, I'm going to need you to help me with this. Um, you know, certainly I don't need you to write anything more or less than what is what exists, what is true, what is right. But your cooperation and participation is going to be critical because this is what I will need in order to get the income support that I need from the disability insurer while I'm off and dealing with my health. We can move on to our uh, first email, by the way. We'd love sure. to uh, love you to participate in the show anytime, by the way. I want to send uh, send us an email. It might appear on a uh, on a future show. Maybe not. Depends. But uh, there you go. And Natalia's first off says, hey, tomorrow my brother has been battling several health issues for the past few months, including alcoholism. His application for LTD was denied as the insurer said he submitted his application late. His employer later acknowledged that this was not my brother's fault, but the insurance company still refused to approve his claim. We've been advised to appeal this decision. What should we do? Well, Natalia, I'm going to suggest you not appeal. Um, but before I get into that, John, I actually want to get into some of the details that Natalia presented with her brother's situation. Um, number one, she mentions something that that I think is important for individuals to hear is this idea of the application being late. And so insurance companies have very strict timelines around when they need to receive your disability application. And those timelines can vary from policy to policy, insurance company to insurance company. Generally speaking, I would say that it lines up to the tip end of when your short-term disability benefits will end. So you're off on leave, you're off for say more than a week, uh, you know, you and your employer, your doctors decide, look, I think you need some time off work. You may start a short-term disability claim. You make that application. It may or may not be the same insurer who does long-term. It may or may not be an insurer at all. It could just be an administrator on behalf of your employer who's looking at your short-term disability claim. Either way, you should know and inform yourself, look, if your health issues are going to persist beyond that short-term phase, and short-term, John, just by its very nature is like weeks, right? 15 weeks, 26 weeks, 17 weeks, something like that. If it's going to go beyond that, you want to initiate that long-term claim. And in Natalia's brother's situation, it turns out it was the employer that led him astray. So you kind of want to have some checks and balances to make your own informed decision or at least have a family member help you or someone help you to let you know, look, this is the time when you need to make that application. Because if the insurance com company can find a technical reason to deny your claim, they're absolutely going to do it, John, because it is one of these things where courts have said it's either on or off. Either there is coverage or there isn't coverage. So look, Let's pick this up after our break. I want to talk a little bit more about the subject, about appealing and what might be happening in Talia's brother's situation. But I wanted to start off addressing that late notice and proof issue. You bet. And we'll uh, we'll pick it up, like you said, after a short break. In the meantime, reaching out to Tamar, here's uh, here's the phone number, one 821 
5900 help at disability rights and as we mentioned short quick easy to read to uh, digest notations on ltd any subject well, a lot of the subjects there uh, listed anyway ltdfaq.ca we'll continue short break is right here then we're coming right back here on the disability law show hang on you're listening to a paid commercial program unless otherwise identified guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser the opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of chorus entertainment all right welcome back disability law show tamara gopian here of course partner sanfiru tamarkin llp the most positively reviewed law firm in this country feel free to reach out anytime to tamar Make the phone call. Won't cost you anything, right? Have a chat. one 821 5900 Or email is a good way to reach out to help at disabilityrights.ca. Okay, let's get back into this. Natalia's uh, concern was the application being late. And then, you know, her employer acknowledged that not not her fault, but the insurance company still refused to uh, approve the claim. The appeal process, that whole conversation's come up. It's just a, it's a fruit salad of, of just misinformation for her anyway, for Natalia. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what Natalia described for us is a situation where there's a technical reason why the insurance company declined the claim. And we talked about this, about this idea that the application was late. But really what the courts have looked at, John, is, is there a reasonable explanation for that lateness? And if there is a reasonable explanation for the lateness, then the courts will forgive the lack of technical requirement, the lack of the fact that that application didn't go in at the exact moment within the exact time frame that the insurance company needed. And so I suspect the insurance company knows this, okay, John, because what she tells us is that the employer was the one that led her brother astray about the time frame, okay? And and again, it probably an innocent mistake, but regardless, the insurance company knows it. So they know it. So now they're looking for a different reason to decline the claim. And she mentioned that you know, her brother had been battling several health issues, including alcoholism. And alcoholism is one that is an interesting one because we know, and it's very well known, that it is a disease in and of itself that's disabling. And it's a recognized um, DSM-5, DSM, whatever it is, the uh, criteria for mental health conditions. And certainly substance abuse is one of those conditions. And so you know, it does not in and of itself disentitle someone for disability benefits. But insurance companies don't necessarily like to approve these types of claims because, of course, substance use and abuse can be very difficult to manage, very difficult to treat, and it can have a very cyclical type pattern where you might have a period of recovery and sobriety and you may then fall off the wagon again and you may Mm -hmm. go through that cycle multiple times in your lifetime. Really, really difficult disease to, to manage. And so, What insurance companies will do is they will try and dress up their denial and saying, you know, not alcoholism per se, though there is an exclusion under most disability policies that say if your disability is a result of a substance use or abuse, we can deny your claim. But of course, that opens the door to a potential human rights issue. And so most insurers will try and avoid actually directly denying on that basis. They'll try and find another reason. And the other reason, and this is what I think might be happening in, in Natalia's brother's situation, is, look, we just don't think that you're getting appropriate treatment. So we don't think that you're getting sufficient treatment for the health issue for which you are seeking disability benefits. And by the way, our policy says if you're not getting appropriate treatment, we're not going to give you the benefit. And so they will deny on that basis, knowing full well that you know the substance issue in and of itself 
is not a good basis to deny. Um, Mm -hmm. So they'll find different things going on. So why do I bring all of this up, John? I do it because Natalia has said, look, they've invited us to appeal. So what do you think, Tamar? Should we go down the road of appealing? (laughs) And yuck is right, John. That's an easy way of saying it. Yuck is absolutely right. Because Mm -hmm. think of all that I've just talked about. I think I've spent probably the last five minutes talking about Natalia's brother's situation with all of these technical issues that have been raised or can potentially be raised in his claim. And when you've got these series of barriers, do you really think the adjuster is going to say, hey, here's an appeal? you know what? I'm going to just change my mind. I think I was wrong for all of the technical reasons that I've lobbed, you know, their way to decline the claim. No, absolutely not. Forget the human nature part of it. There's no interest for the insurance company doing it because there are very solid reasons in their mind that they're declining the claim and they're going to create these barriers and put up these barriers in the hope and expectation that certainly Natalia's brother doesn't have the wherewithal, the gumption, the desire, the need, the availability to actually challenge the disability insurer in a situation like this. So many, many people walk away, John. This is partly why they have this appeal process, because it keeps you in their realm, in their zone of get us more medical. Oh, we're going to look at the medical. Oh, we have 30 days to look at it. Oh, we have two months. We there's no There's no checks and balances to the appeal process. It's just an internally conceived process by the insurance companies. And all it's doing is it's wearing you down and it's you're running out of time to start a legal claim. And this is why I recommend a legal claim most wholeheartedly in what Natalia has described with her brother's situation, because all of these technical issues have sound case law to refute to the insurance company that this is not a good basis to decline his claim. But we can only get there if we're actually talking mano a mano, meaning I want to deal with the insurance company's lawyer. I don't want to deal with the claims adjuster. I don't want Natalia and her brother dealing with the claims adjuster. They're not going to know the cases. I know the cases, <laughs> their lawyers know the cases, and then we're going to have a reasonable discussion around whether or not these technical reasons are going to be upheld by a court. I can tell you they will not. And then we can have a good discussion around what benefits should have been paid, what is the you know length or expectation of those benefits to be payable, where's Natalia's brother at from a health perspective, and allow us the tools to get an effective resolution for his brother, for a brother rather, Instead of having to go through the rigmarole of appealing and appealing and not knowing and then being worn down and he's sort of thinking, gosh, all I need is help for my, my, my conditions and I don't know what to do here. The answer is not to appeal. That's I right. recommend against it. Please do give us a call. Let's have a consultation and I want to give you the options and then you can make that choice. I want to empower people with this information so they know what to do and then they can make choices for themselves as opposed to feeling beholden to the insurance company and their process. Yeah. And it's, it's quite often, uh, as mentioned, not just an appeal, it's appeals You can get into the plural and then it gets really slow and delayed. And then eventually, I mean, there's arguments on both sides. You could run out of time, but once you go down that rabbit hole, they're going to tell you to do it again and again. It's a great stall tactic, really. And it works, it works quite well for insurance companies, right? It, it does, and it can take months sometimes, yeah. if not years. It, there's one in particular, John, that it can. It's it's a year or two, I think, is by the time they did the appeal and then responded to the appeal. I think the client, uh, the, the one I'm thinking of, the client indicated the appeal within two weeks of the denial letter, and then it took eight months 
to get another phone call with the adjuster and another year before she got the decision saying we're declining again. And so, of course, by then she's been off work for almost two years. Um, you know, she's come to us. We're, we're in the middle of a legal claim. We're at the doorsteps of a mediation. We're going to get this thing resolved. Um, and of course, all, you know, additional medicals all stacked in her favor. But, you know, it's an added element of stress and anxiety. And this is the this is the trouble. And this is the challenge. But this is what the insurance companies want. They want to wear you down to the point where you're like, okay, well, I guess I'm either going to have to force myself back to work or, you know, leave money on the table or, you know, I, my, my choices are not good, but I can't work. So I don't know what to do. Right. Uh, and this is what we're here for. So, you know, I hope that individuals are listening and that they realize that anything that we speak to our potential clients or clients is completely confidential. All our consultations are free. You know, we are retained as well. There's no upfront legal fees. We will run the full file. We will spend the money that's needed to get medical reports and other things to build the case. And we only receive a fee if we're successful in getting a successful resolution on behalf of our clients. So there's really not a lot of downside to allow us to help you in circumstances like this. Yeah, you know, something else the insurer likes to do, uh, Tamar, is the old IME, the independent medical examination. Now, as far as this examination is concerned, I know you got to do it. You got to go for it, this assessment, but does it last a few hours, a few minutes, a whole day, six weeks? I mean, how long a, how long a period here are we talking generally when it comes to the IMEs? <laughs> Yeah, good question, John. So so there's no set time period, actually. And, you know, this isn't something you're going to find in your policy either, right? So you're right that the policy will say if the insurance company wants you to attend this kind of an assessment that you, you have to attend. And generally, there is a cooperation or a duty on the behalf of a claimant as well to cooperate with the insurance company's adjudication efforts. In other words, the ways in which they need to, to do things to assess your disability claim. But unfortunately, there's no set time frame on how long a certain type of assessment should take. I've been told that they can take an hour. I've been told they can take several hours over several days. So what I encourage individuals to do is find that out. You, you, mm-hmm. As soon as the insurance company or your adjuster is saying to you, hey, we're going to send you to this assessment, you're going to be assessed by such and such person on such and such day, you want to understand very clearly, okay, well, what's the specialist? Where am I going? Uh, you know, Is it close to my home? If not, they should arrange transportation for you. Um, you want to know, can I bring someone with me? Uh, you want to understand what type of assessment is being done, physical, mental health, some combination of the two. And then it should, you know, the insurance company or the assessor should tell you, okay, this is expected to last X number of hours or, you know, two, three hours in a given day. And then the next day we're going to do another few hours. And so at least then you've got some clear sight line on expectations, right? And you can then manage your health and your time frame around attending this assessment and understanding what's going to happen at the assessment. The thing though is, John, that a lot of people, what they don't do is either tell their own medical team that they're going to an assessment like this, which you absolutely should, mm-hmm. and they don't document what happens or how they felt afterwards. And that's really critical. Think of a physical independent medical assessment that's going to happen over two days. And they're going to take you through a number of physical tests 
depending on what your disability is, it could be very focused on certain body parts, or it could be from head to toe. And they're going to try and push you to those limits. And they're going to do over two days. And so if after the second day, or even after the first day, you're still having difficulty managing when you get home, you need to take 19 pain meds and go to sleep right away so that you can go to the, to the assessment the next day. That is something that's very important to document. And you may want to tell the assessor, but you certainly want to keep your own record of it and communicate that to your own medical team when that report comes out with the conclusions to the insurance company saying, hey, this person's good to go, by the way. We think they're ready for our return to work because on these two hours of these two days, we were able to push them to the maximum point where they could sit for 19 hours and answer phone calls, okay? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I'm exaggerating a bit to, for effect, John, because it can be that ridiculous. You know, the the conclusions that can be extrapolated from this testing and these assessments can be very, very um, absurd to some extent when you look at sometimes the balance of the medical information that the insurance company has available. And it's done with intention, of course. This is why the insurance company is putting money towards these kinds of assessments is because they are looking to find an opportunity to close your claim and encourage you to return back to work. So this is what you want to have a lot of sightline around is how long is it going to take and make sure that you've got your own medical team available to do a rebuttal report or, or work with you if you need further treatment after these assessments and really to respond to the insurance company's inevitable suggestion that you're ready to get back to work and they're going to cut off the disability claim. More emails, lots more questions on the way. We'll continue this chat as well about IMEs in just a minute. we got to take a short break, though, as we uh, get into that. To reach out to Tamar and her team, here's the phone number again, 1-855-821-5900. The email address you can use anytime is help at disabilityrights.ca. This is the Disability Law Show. There's more coming up. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right. Welcome back. Disability Law Show. Love having you around for the hour. A reminder as well, you want to take part in the show. We love having that third voice. You can do that through email. It is help at disabilityrights.ca. Beyond that, you can reach out to Tamar and her uh, her team, best in the country, man, for a lengthier private conversation about your matter for yourself, possibly a friend or family member who's dealing with an insurance company and a disability cutoff. Maybe uh, maybe that's what it is. 1-855-821-5900. Just before the break, we were just wrapping up our, uh, our conversation conversation about IMEs uh, tomorrow. What, you know, you mentioned how far do I got to go? Where's the office? Are you providing transportation? How long is this going to take? What did we, I know things are clearing up now. It's getting better, but how did this, how did this transpire during COVID? I mean, they can't physically see you. Was it all done over Zoom? Are they still doing that? Is that a better, can you request that alternative if you're not comfortable going physically to a, to a space? You can't. Okay. How does that work? Yeah. Yeah, you can't, you can, I mean, look, I I see it in the context of a legal claim. Okay, John, and even within the context of a legal claim, an insurer may say to us, look, we really want to do an assessment of your uh, client. This is the kind of assessment we're conceiving of. And, you know, for example, a mental health one, you know, that one can be more easily facilitated doing virtually if that is more comfortable and, uh, you know, easier to coordinate, I suppose, between the claimant and the assessor. But the physical assessments is interesting. So through COVID, I was uh, I was told by a couple of individuals that yes, they tried to do them virtually, and, and they did them virtually. 
but you could see how stilted they could be, right, John? So it's it was like a physiotherapist or an occupational therapist on a screen trying to coach the individual to do certain movements with whatever they had at home in terms of weights and other things so that they could make observations around the tolerances. And look, I can understand why the insurers wanted to still keep that process going. But at the end of the day, if a court were to look at this critically, I mean, what what true results were coming out of testing like that? I don't think that the insurance company was really getting the full spectrum of what it is that they were seeking by way of that kind of assessment, because there's just so much uh, opportunity for error or misinterpretation when you're not physically actually testing an individual in person. Having said that, you know, because there are immunocompromised individuals out there, I think that's still a really important reality for a lot of our clients. And the idea that they're going to have to expose themselves again and again to treatment providers and other assessments when we're likely going to go through COVID wave after COVID wave and other things, right? They're talking about flus and other health issues. Then I do think that it is a reasonable request to say to the insurer, look, um, you know my health, you know my health background, you know I'm immunocompromised, you know these are the real issues. I'm happy to participate in the assessment that you have setting up for me, but can we try and do it virtually? Or is there some workaround where, you know, um, either masking or some other measures can be put in place in order to protect my health? And I think that having that dialogue with your adjuster is important. If the insurance company refuses a reasonable request, John, it just makes them look worse, right? And it brings into question the results that are obtained from the you know assessment that they do, which sure. a lawyer like me down the road, that's great fodder for us, um, you know, with the insurance company to extricate more dollars, talk to them about damages and other exposures. But when you're in the middle of it, if if you're listening and you're thinking, I've got an assessment coming up and gee, I'm really concerned that it's going to be done virtually or not virtually, then have that reasonable discussion with your case manager. Make sure that you're documenting that discussion. And then however it lands at the end, you participate, but then at least you've got a basis to say, hey, by the way, remember when I asked you guys to do it in person versus virtual and you decided to do virtual? This is why, because I don't think the results that you got from this assessment was actually valid. So there's a there's a real range of things that can happen and you know pros and cons, I would say, John, to doing virtual versus in person. But I think that what people shy away from most, as far as I see, is not having that discussion, right? right. And people get just worried that, oh, well, I, I, I can't suggest anything to my adjuster. They're just going to tell me how it is and it is what it is. No, that's not the case at <laughs> all. In fact, they're not supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be cooperating with you with your rehabilitation and your recovery. That's actually what their original conception of their job was supposed to be. And so the fact that you're feeling pressured to do something that you don't think is going to be worthwhile or that you know is going to put you in harm's way is not a good starting point for any sort of assessment. So I encourage individuals to have those discussions. And then, of course, to document everything that you can so that if there's any disconnect, if there are things that didn't fall right the way that it, it should or report, reported or recorded in the correct way, that you've got then your own independent information to challenge the insurer on what they've said or done. Let's get to an email from Hillary. Uh, Hillary, well answered, by the way, filled that out uh, big time. Hillary says, um, Tamar, my son's 43. He suffered from depression since his early 20s, but in the past, he's been able to manage this with medication. 
Unfortunately, over the last few years, his condition has gotten much worse. Many days, he hasn't been able to function at all and had to take a medical leave from work. He applied for disability insurance, but was denied. He's seeing a psychiatrist, which is covered by OHIP. There's no way he can go back to work right now, and his psychiatrist agrees. He wants to appeal, but I've listened to your show and told him that he shouldn't because it's a waste of time, but he doesn't want to start a legal claim because he doesn't have the money to pay for a lawyer. Are you able to help him at all? Can you at least talk to him? 100% Hillary. We can totally talk to him. It doesn't cost you anything. Doesn't cost you anything. Doesn't cost your son anything. It is absolutely free. And in fact, John, you know, this is interesting because we were talking about this at our recent group meeting. We've got a team of disability lawyers and we meet fairly regularly and we talk this through. And we still get people who think that after they speak with us that they're going to have to pay us something. And we actually do follow-ups after we speak with people. Sometimes I want to see further information. Sometimes I set up a second call and inevitably I'll get another question saying, and by the way, tomorrow, how, how much is this going to cost me? And I say to them, nothing. It's not going to cost you anything. So I don't want people to shy away from getting information about their rights on disability and how to deal with a disability insurer because they're worried they're going to get a bill from us at the end. They will not. That is not how it works. And so what I'd like to do is actually set up a call with Hillary and her son to talk this through a little more. I want to understand what it is that the insurance company is saying to decline the claim. On what basis could there be when he's getting the support from his psychiatrist and I suspect the family doctor as well, what is the reason the insurance company is responding and saying we're declining benefits on this basis? Certainly, it sounds like he's got a very compelling situation, very compelling case, and he's relatively young as well. And so I think it is very important, in fact, uh, to go down that path, have that conversation, and then really consider whether a legal claim in a circumstance like this makes sense. And again, if you hire us, There are no upfront fees whatsoever. We work exclusively on contingency, which means that we take a percentage of whatever we're successful in recovering on behalf of our clients. That is the model. And we do it with intention because we know, John, that in fact, people cannot afford to pay a lawyer when their disability insurance benefits have either been cut off or never approved in the first place. Hillary. Great email. Thanks for reaching out. You've got the email address. I'm going to give you the phone number now because I'm pretty sure a follow-up conversation is going to be happening with you or your uh, your son for sure. Here's how you reach Tamar. Moving forward, 1-855-821-5900 is the way. 1-855-821-5900. We'll take a break and get back to more questions, maybe a couple or, uh, more emails with our remaining time, but stick around. More disability law shows on the way. You're listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment. All right, welcome back. Thank you so much for hanging on. A few minutes to go here, Disability Law Show. But when the show ends, that doesn't mean it ends for you. You can always reach out to Tamar and her team. Always ready to have a chat with you. It won't cost you anything, man. Just to pick up a phone and uh, make that call. one 821 5900 That's a quick number to get some answers for sure. You also have the option of ltdfaq.ca. That website is built just for you to navigate simple. It's all like Lego, man. Just click on the blocks of the different topics. There's drop-down menus and points to be read. Uh, and that'll answer 
answered a lot of your questions even before the phone call. That is ltdfaq.ca. You can try that for nothing. And then finally, help at disabilityrights.ca is the go-to email all the time and especially on the show as well. We often talk about a client's claim for what they call punitive or bad faith damages. What sort of factors or do, do you look at when you're making that assessment with a, uh, with a client tomorrow? What do you say? Good question, John. Really good question. And, you know, it's not one of those things that I would say you have these three things and therefore you will be awarded punitive damages. Right. Okay. And so, and, and actually it's a bit more nuanced than that from a legal perspective as well, because there are different categories of damages. And so for our listeners, I just want to clarify what that is. These are, it's compensation, it's money that is awarded to individuals against the insurance company as a measure of demonstrating that they did not behave properly or did not conduct themselves properly as it related to someone's disability claim. And so it's compensation that's available over and above what benefits are payable. Okay. So it's extra compensation. And what the courts have clarified are that there are punitive damages, aggravated damages, mental health distress damages, and the reasons behind why one or the other may be awarded along the way will differ from case to case. Punitive in and of itself, that one is one that's really a you know slap on the wrist against the insurance company that really right. behaves um, you know in a high-handed, callous manner, you know, in a way that really was antithesis to what they're meant to do, which is they're there to be a peace of mind policy, peace of mind benefit. And so that one can be awarded very rarely. Uh, I have seen it. They can be quite substantial. And really, it's meant to deter the insurance company in the ways that they either treated the claimant or in the adjudication practices that they maintained. But here's the thing, John, the court will also consider how they handled the litigation. So there was one recently that we've talked about a couple of times on our various shows where a jury actually awarded a million and a half in damages and compensation to an individual. And among those those dollars was punitive damages. Mm -hmm. And in, in it was, from the few reasons that we do have, was an understanding that the insurance company had done hundreds of hours of surveillance, both before and during the litigation. And the court took that into consideration. So going back to your question, look, what am I looking for in terms of a damages claim? It evolves. It's not just the point in time where someone comes to us and says, okay, tomorrow I want to retain you. I'm going to pursue damages. Yep, we're going to pursue damages. It's also how does the insurance company conduct themselves through the litigation to the point that it may or may not go to trial? Again, very rare for these kinds of claims to go to trial, but certainly if they do at that point, there's a very real conversation happening about these different heads of damages. And what we're looking for really is evidence of conduct that is outside of what you would expect a reasonable insurer to do, T steps taken that would make sense in the context of a typical adjudication of that particular disability. So Surveillance is one that comes to mind only because of that recent decision that we we know of the, the jury trial award against um, you know Blue Cross, and other circumstances like that can warrant damages exposure to the insurance company. For example, there's one in particular that likes to send journal entries like "Send me what you're doing today, tomorrow, next week" in detail. When did you wake up? What did you do today? Where did you go? When did you sleep? 
And they will actually get an investigator out during that same time frame to see if what you recorded and reported and said to the insurance company lines up with what their investigator actually saw you do that day. So it kind of has a feeling of entrapment, John. And, you know, like if you think about it, like it's like a sting operation. And so look, I don't want individuals who are listening to us being worried that this is something that happens regularly. It doesn't happen as much as you would think. But when we're talking about damages, this is a very important factor because if there's no transparency, good faith conduct with you, openness about your disability claim from your adjuster and insurance company, then that absolutely does expose the insurance company to a damages claim. If the insurance company is harassing you, if they're calling you too often and that's really putting you into a panic attack, for example, every time you speak with your adjuster, that's a problem. The courts have said that can warrant mental distress damages in the tens of thousands, by the way. And so, again, it's not a one-size-fits-all analysis, but it is something we're very live to in our team. We talk about it very regularly. We know what we're looking for in terms of when we look at a claims file or do an analysis of a file. And we're certainly putting that as a leverage point against the insurers when we're talking to them about resolving our claims with our clients, because they know that the longer it goes, the more scrutiny there will be against the insurer with their decision to maintain an ongoing denial of benefits and what choices they make in defending that legal claim in the eyes of the court. With that, we will get into a uh, another question here, pal. Um, you know what? No, let's go to mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll sure. go there. It says, uh, tomorrow I'm concerned that one of my doctors will no longer support me being off work, but I'm not ready to return. Will having another doctor write medical reports for me affect my claim? That's a good question. Thank you, mydisabilityquestions.com. And so, look, it it all depends. And again, it's not a straight up answer that one doctor is not going to be supportive and another will be. I think it depends on what doctor is treating for what condition, what is the basis of the disability claim. Let me give a really quick example, John. Think about a mental health claimant and a mental health claimant who's being treated by the family doctor and perhaps either a psychologist or a psychiatrist. I think in a situation like that, if the family doctor isn't being all that helpful, but the psychiatrist or psychologist is, I think that's a good scenario. I'm not concerned about the family doctor not being all that helpful in a scenario like that because it's a mental health disability and you've got the mental health specialist who is providing supportive medical for your disability claim. So do not get too worried about one doctor or another. What you want is at least some consistent support. And if that support's coming at least from one of your treatment providers, then that in my mind is enough to support a disability claim for you to be entitled to disability benefits. And with that, we got to wrap it up. It was quick, but it was a good answer. I'll leave you with some numbers and other contact information. 1-855-821-5900 is how you get a hold of Tomorrow Team. 1-855-821-5900. The email address we use every week is help at disabilityrights.ca. And that question, which you can uh, get to anytime, write your own, check to see if it's been asked before. So it's a searchable database. That's called mydisabilityquestions.com. And a couple times so far, we've mentioned a, uh, a nice resource for you, quick easy to read notations all about different topics of LTD. A lot of satisfaction to be had there. Free and anonymous, of course. That is ltdfaq.ca. And we'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.
The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Chorus Entertainment.